0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Barnaby Barrett about his book, Beyond Psychotherapy, on becoming a radical psychoanalyst, published by Rutledge in 2019. I will always remember this year, 2019, as the year that I discovered Barnaby Barrett. He's um, probably one of the most influential authors I've read. And I've been, as you know, doing this podcast, I read a lot of books on psychoanalysis. But in terms of his influence on on my own psychoanalytic theory and practice, he's been very impactful. And I first came across him reading an article on the Oedipus Complex in a recent um, uh, issue of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. And so I I went out and bought one of his books, this one um, that we're reviewing today on becoming a radical psychoanalyst and uh, read that one got very excited about how he brought so many things together for me in terms of what what is psychoanalysis so i bought some other of his books and read those and and so we're going to talk about um not just this book today but the a trilogy he's written i I couldn't do justice to his his credentials and qualifications, um so i'm I'm pretty much going to skip those over, but trust me, they are stellar academic credentials. He's somebody who, for me, brings together issues of of sexuality, social justice, and psychoanalysis in a very compelling way, and so I hope you enjoy hearing from him today as much as I've enjoyed getting to know his work so uh, with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Barrett.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lance, Uh, and please call me Barnaby. And may I call you Philip?
0: Yes, please do. Okay. Okay.
1: So, Barnaby,
0: our first question usually is just uh, very simple. This book, Beyond Psychotherapy: On Becoming a Radical Psychoanalyst. Why did you write this book?
1: Well, actually, Philip, it's very difficult to answer that question because I don't see it as an autonomous volume. Uh, It emerged as the third in a trilogy and so it's very difficult for me to see uh, or to explain this autonomously without talking about what is psychoanalysis which was the first of the trilogy published in uh, 2013 by routledge and then um radical psychoanalysis an essay on free associative praxis which came out with routledge in 2016 and now this one which you make such kind remarks about and i Appreciate Your generosity in the compliments that you express uh, This one is the third of three Now if I try to talk about why I wrote this one alone It was partly because in the first two I had tried to find a kernel An essence of what was distinctive about psychoanalysis As it emerged about 130 years ago and in doing that, I, I talked about the history of psychoanalysis and then specifically about the method that Freud himself was the, was the sine qua non of psychoanalysis, the free associative method. So when I came to realize that there was a need for this book uh, as the third, and it, it didn't emerge, <laughs> I didn't set off to write a trilogy. It sort of happened that way. But when I came to think about why why write this book, Beyond Psychotherapy, there are two or three reasons. One is that I think in the course of the history of this rather motley discipline that we call psychoanalysis, to which I am very committed and have been my entire adult life, when we take a look at this motley discipline, I think we have lost the distinction between psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Now, psychotherapy can mean many different things, uh, but there is something over and above the goals and the aims and the techniques of psychotherapy that psychoanalysis offered the world uh, from its inception and that I think we're in danger of losing that distinction and in that we're going to lose something very essential that Freud discovered in in a revolutionary manner about the human condition. So that was the first and foremost reason that having written two books about psychoanalysis and about its distinctive qualities, I felt an obligation in a way to say almost sort of as the the final bit that I needed to say how it's different from psychotherapy. And I think what the loss is if we confuse psychotherapeutic practices from the distinctive process of psychoanalysis. A second reason that I needed to write this uh, really has to do with, well, I had said what psychoanalysis is from a, a radical and perhaps many would say maverick perspective. I now needed to tell something about how one becomes a psychoanalyst. And that uh, is the burden of chapter three of this book. The first two chapters sort of go over uh, the ground covered more or less in the first two books. And in the third chapter, I provide a critique uh, of psychoanalytic training as it stands today and as it's offered today in most institutes across the world, something that I know, Philip, you know a lot about personally. I tried to provide a critique and also to suggest how genuinely and authentically one becomes a psychoanalyst, which has rather little to do with the sort of trade school functioning of many psychoanalytic institutes. So that was the second. Uh, And I suppose the third reason was I wanted to tie the trilogy up at the end uh, in the remaining chapters after the third chapter by talking about the social and political implications because, as you well know, from its very start, uh, psychoanalysis um, was really revolutionary in terms of how it looked at and what it discovered about the human condition. In 1912, Freud, Freud wrote to the existential psychologist uh, Ludwig Binswanger. Uh, he said, it has been my fate, it has been my destiny to disturb the peace of the world which I think is a very interesting insight that Freud had in 1912, as early as 1912, into what the implications were beyond the consulting room, beyond the couch of his discipline. If you know W.H. Auden's poem that he wrote on the death of Freud, he refers to Freud as the prince of our unsettlement, So, if indeed psychoanalysis is a discipline of unsettlement, a discipline that calls into questions the presumptions we have about life, the ideologies by which we grasp the world around us, if indeed psychoanalysis is a process of unsettling, then what are its social political implications for liberation theory, for how we approach social justice, for how we even conceive of the notion of freedom? So in a in a long-winded answer to your very short question that I think sums up why I felt the need to write this third book beyond psychotherapy
0: well good I hope that begins to sort of um intrigue our listeners um and and want to read this book because um I'd read a lot in the past, not a whole lot, but some journal articles about the difference between psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And I was never really convinced that I could determine, you know, it, was there really kind of a, a line between the two? Reading your book is the first time I've really become convinced that 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 you can make a strong case for very, these are very different things that are happening. But I wanna go to the question of the what is a radical psychoanalyst and the different sort of meanings that word carries. Also, you, you, you use the word maverick. In a way, when I read your work, you don't seem like a maverick because you're going back to some very basic Freudian um, ideas, early Freudian ideas. So I don't know, there's probably several questions here, but basically I'm, I'm, I'm asking about the word radical and maverick.
1: Well, I think there's a certain amount of irony and paradox uh, in my use of both of those words, uh, I'm maverick simply because if you take the average expectable person who calls themselves a psychoanalyst today, I know that's a fictive entity, but you can imagine it for a moment. Uh, most psychoanalysts would say, uh, this is this is strange. This is sort of what we thought we were doing, sort of what psychoanalysis is. And then many psychoanalysts say this is not at all what psychoanalysis is about. Uh, So that's why I sometimes use, refer to myself as maverick, all the while I actually, in my heart of hearts, believing without sounding too narcissistic, that I'm actually talking about something that is essential from the very beginning has been essential about the purity of the discipline as it was discovered. Now, using the word radical... Uh, obviously has a number of implications in the first volume what is psychoanalysis or actually it may be in the second i'm now forgetting my own sequence of writing i talk about why use the word radical and and one reason for using the word radical uh, there are there are two or three reasons but one reason is is actually in the etymology of the word that psychoanalysis is something that goes back to the roots. It goes back to the roots of what it means to be human uh, existentially, spiritually, politically. Uh, and in that sense, many psychotherapists, including psychotherapists that call themselves psychoanalytic, by which I mean uh, therapies such as object-relational therapies, interpersonal therapists. Uh, all those sorts of large range of therapies that appropriate the name psychoanalytic, they're psychoanalytically informed or psychoanalytically oriented. But in a way, my argument is that they, as psychotherapists, are necessarily governed by certain sorts of values, certain sorts of values that often go entirely unexamined. The two most prominent of which is, for instance, the notion of adaptation. Now, very often psychotherapists throw around the word adaptation, Uh, similarly throw around the word pathology, without actually asking the question, adapted to what? Adapted in what way? It's a very sticky question if you approach that question to most psychotherapists. And so radical, in a way, means something about how we're going to try to get to the roots of presumptions that are necessarily imported into the goals and the practice of psychotherapy. Another such word would be maturation. You know, we tend to talk about maturation in psychotherapy without actually necessarily asking both about the cultural context of maturation and also around the implicit values that, again, often go unexamined around a notion such as maturation. So there'll be two examples. I use radical in in a number of other ways because I'm very interested in the implications of psychoanalytic thinking for social questions. How does psychoanalytic thinking empower us to think about political issues about the conduct of human affairs? how does it help us to think about notions such as freedom or notions such as justice? Uh, notions such as these, very often in the philosophical literature and in the literature of political science, have not been uh, enlightened by the insights that psychoanalysis brings. Of course, there are there's a notable tradition of exceptions to that. So I also use radical in in that sort of a way. So that, that's two or three reasons why I appropriate the word radical, uh, because I am, I feel, going back to the very first things, the insights and the very first method that defines psychoanalysis and that has all too often been lost or is being lost or has been lost, and also radical in the sense that we're looking at the roots of things And radical in the sense that it's frankly political, that we're looking at what does it mean to talk about how humans suffer and what makes them suffer and what are the loci of internal and external suffering and therefore what are the radical implications of the insight and the wisdom that psychoanalysis
0: brings. Taking off on this idea of radical in, in terms of going back to the the sense of back to the fundamentals, I know in your books, you you kind of highlight four fundamental Freudian ideas that are sort of the foundation of psychoanalysis. One of those um, is free associative discourse. So I'd like to hear you talk more about that and to kind of maybe set the scene a little later this morning. I'll be seeing clients, uh, patients, they'll be coming in, they'll be talking and um from from the perspective of a radical psychoanalyst psychoanalyst i don't want to i could be listening to what they're saying in terms of how it's showing me how how they're adapted their adaptive how adapted they are to the world or not i could also be listening in terms of how it shows their maturity but obviously i don't want to do that because that's not real psychoanalysis so um what is it that we're doing when in terms of free associative discourse when we're listening to patient material?
1: Okay. Well, let, 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 me, preface, let me preface what I want to say uh, by um, an immediate reaction to what you've said, uh, because it, uh, it very much illuminates the question of what will you do with your patients later today. First of all, there is no pure psychoanalytic process. In other words, no patient arrives and can just enter into psychoanalysis. And I make this point very, very carefully in in the book Beyond Psychotherapy, because otherwise it looks as though I'm talking about something that is totally different from psychotherapy, and I'm not. There is a difference, and the difference is very important. But the use of the word beyond is critical. In any actual relationship as it unfolds between a patient and a practitioner, there have to be lots and lots of maneuvers that are actually psychotherapeutic. And the distinctive feature of psychotherapeutic maneuvers is actually that they attempt to arrive at constructions, you can call them insights, interpretations. They attempt to arrive at formulations about the inner life of the patient and the patient's place in the external world, the sort of the what, the how, and the who of the patient, they attempt to arrive at constructions or formulations about that, and that that is, in a way, the essential feature of psychotherapeutic procedure. Now, the important thing is that in actually every relationship between a practitioner and a patient, there's lots and lots and lots of psychotherapy. The problem is it has got to the point in our history where most practitioners stop there. And the stopping there is the problem that I try to identify in this trilogy because there is something beyond psychotherapy, which is a psychoanalytic process that isn't just a question of knowing or modifying what one knows about the world and oneself, but is actually a question of opening oneself, almost one might say existentially, to the voices within oneself many of which actually cannot be formulated or arrived at or pinned down or captivated in interpretations. So in any actual treatment there is an increasing move towards being more and more free associative. And the distinctive feature of psychoanalysis is that we're not so worried about the practitioners' interpretations, except insofar as they addressed to the patient's resistances to listening to himself or herself associatively. Now to go back to your original uh, point about the four four coordinates, I didn't actually write this, Freud did. What I did was I provided in the first book was a sort of a riff on those four coordinates and, and what they actually meant. And what I try to argue is the first and foremost thing that distinguishes psychoanalysis is this method of free association. Now, we need to discuss at some point what is free association. It's a complicated question, and in the psychoanalytic literature, it's a question that's often been much misunderstood. But through for, through the process of free association, Freud said that there are actually four cornerstones of psychoanalysis. I think cornerstones is uh, Grundpfeiler. is the word he used in German. I think it's an unfortunate word. I would rather say there are four coordinates of psychoanalysis. And each of them, three of them directly and one of them indirectly, are actually integrally arrived at by his experience of free association. Now, the first is the idea of repression. Suppression, as we know, means that you put something out of your mind, but it remains in a state that is representable. Repression, and this this evolved in Freud's writings progressively between 1895 and 1915, those 20 crucial years of discovery. Repression means that something that you have is so awful that it becomes unthinkable. In other words, it loses its representational state. And obviously there's a very important argument there which I make at length in the first two books. So that's the first coordinate. And in fact, at one point, Freud says, you know, you could take the doctrine of repression and everything else that is psychoanalytic, you could orient around it. What Freud discovered through experience with reassociation is that there's something more than suppression, something more than selective inattention, something more than memories that are forgotten but can be retrieved in a representational form, and that he called repression. And he even said that between the representational mind and that which is repressed, he said there's a repression barrier. And he used the strongest German word, Schranke to describe this barrier. So that's the first coordinate. Now the second coordinate actually follows Thomit, because in saying that Things can be repressed. What he sort of says, what he sort of feels compelled to introduce is the notion of psychic energy and the notion that there are energies within us that are not just material functions. They're not just the operation of neurons or the various functions of our physiology and so forth. There's an energy. It's a rather peculiar idea, although interestingly, it's a it's a teaching that almost every indigenous spiritual tradition has but he says there's an energy that is neither material nor is it immaterial in the way that thoughts and feelings and wishes that can be represented are uh, immaterial and this he calls energy and he quickly called it libido and obviously he was very confused in many ways about how he presented this but what is most important is that alongside the discovery of the unconscious is the discovery that bodily energies are foundational to who we are. And this becomes the whole doctrine that he's been accused of pansexualism, but the whole doctrine, the whole way of thinking that the body and the energetic, uh, the energetic movements of the, within our body is actually central and that is the theory, in a way, of sexuality, hugely misunderstood even from early in the, psycho- in the history of psychoanalysis. So that's the second coordinate. Third coordinate is personal history, and the interesting thing that Freud did with personal history, although he did it over a prolonged period of time and in a rather confused way, but a prolonged period of time, I mean, between about one thousand, eight hundred and ninety-six and one thousand, nine hundred and eighteen. He said that history, yes, there is an etiology to who we are, an etiology in a chronological sense. One thing, one experience builds on the next. I have said it the wrong way around. An experience is integral to the next experience, is integral to the next experience, and so forth. We know that. There's development. But he also says that in an interesting way, the development of the psyche, can go backwards as well as forwards. And he doesn't just mean that all of us are capable of regressing to being three-year-olds if we're under enough stress. He actually means that history can be revised so that something that is not traumatic at one point in life can, for example, become traumatic at a later point in life when one thinks back on it. So this introduces a notion of the temporality of psychic life that is really quite unusual and quite distinctive, and it's really only until quite recently that people have, that psychoanalysts have started to try to come to terms with this. That the German term that has become important is Nachträglichkeit. It sort of means afterwardsness. It means that you can go back and redo things in strange ways uh, within the time of the mind. Now those three coordinates, repression, sensuality, energy, sexuality, whatever, however you want to phrase it and, and, and frame it, and then the idea of the time of the mind not being simply a linear progression. Those three actually led him to the Oedipus complex, and the, which is the fourth coordinate. The Oedipus complex, Freud said, is like the shibboleth that distinguishes real psychoanalysts, from those who are not. And as you know, Philip, uh, in our our current state of psychoanalysis, there are lots of psychoanalysts who really downplay the Oedipal complex. And in the paper you mentioned that I wrote in, uh, I think, 2018 uh, on Oedipality, uh, I tried to make the point that we've muddled up what the Oedipal complex is It is about mummies and daddies and forbidden thoughts in relation to mummies and daddies. But what is most centrally about is how the mind comes to term with the incest taboo. And one of the most intriguing things about reading early Freud that I don't think has nearly been uh, sufficiently discussed, although Andre Green and Jean Laplanche get very close to saying this, if you track Freud's early writings, he interest introduces the notion of the repression barrier and almost at the same time he starts talking about the incest barrier the fact that one's most important experiences in the early years of life the first two or three years of life and the sensuality that one experiences with one's earliest caretakers has to the child in some way has to come to terms with that It is those that one most loves historically that are most taboo in terms of sexual expression. This is the incest taboo. It's a universal feature of human life, although how different cultures interpret it varies quite a lot. Um, So the incest taboo, in a way, forms our our intrapsychic life such that what Freud is calling the repression barrier is actually the intrapsychic inscription of a very fundamental taboo. And that is really the essence of what oedipality is about. And we have to start thinking about oedipality differently because unless we sort of abandon it and go into all these ideas about attachment and object relations and we lose the centrality and the importance of oedipality in the formation of psychic life, unless we... If we don't lose it, if we're going to keep it, we have to stop talking about mummies and daddies. We have instead to talk about maternal and paternal functions, and that's especially important today. I know I'm moving away from your original question, Philip, but it's especially important today because we have uh, gay partners who are having children. We have surrogate parent parenting. We have adoptive parenting. Mummies and daddies is a sort of a traditional framework to think about oedipality, but in a way it's one that slightly misled us. So those are the four coordinates, which Freud called cornerstones, and that is very briefly my sort of riff on what Freud really was aiming to try to describe and discuss when he talked about those four coordinates, although this is very much how I have understood it and extrapolated them uh on the basis of the sort of thinking that I've been doing okay
0: so as we're listening then to a patient let's say they're far enough along that they're they're beginning to to really do the free associative process so what what we would be listening to is what how their 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 speech is being and discourse is being shaped by repressed content which is um which is in it itself formed by these this psychic energy, this bodily energy, um, which I guess Freud called libido, um, and that they might not be aware of how it's it's influencing them. But I, what I want to ask is, why is this bodily energy a sexual energy, because there's probably lots of psychotherapies out there that try to really work closely with the body and body, bodily energies, but they're not necessarily interested in a sexual body.
1: Yeah, that's, so I mean, that's a very, that? very good question and, and a very good synopsis of what I just was trying to say. Um, I think you've actually touched on two or three things that are are important. Let's go to the last uh, implication of what you said first there are lots of body psychotherapists i'm actually very interested in body psychotherapists um, and i'm a member of the european association of body psychotherapists but very often the psychotherapists that focus on the body uh, either are simply interested in the expression of meanings through the body so you think about things like dance therapy Uh, and those sorts of modalities. Uh, Also, they tend not to understand or have a theory of the resistance to listening to the body. And in some ways, they really don't have, and I'm afraid this is ubiquitous, it applies to somatic experiencing, it applies to Hakomi, it applies to all sorts of modalities like that. They don't have what psychoanalysis has, which is a theory of how things get repressed. Or if they do, it's a rather simplistic one compared with what Freud offered psychoanalytically. So the idea of resistance and repression tends to be missing, at least from the theorization of the body psychotherapy movement, although they have a lot of very useful techniques. Now, to go to the first part of what you said, why call it sexual? I mean, this has got psychoanalysis into a huge amount of trouble, um, and the early practitioners, um, notably people like Ernst Jones, the early followers of Freud, tried desperately to protect Freud from, or Freud's theories, or how Freud's theories were being read as a doctrine of pansexualism, as a doctrine that sort of says everything in life is actually sexual, or and or it's an aggressive reaction, it's a hostile, rageful, hateful reaction against the natural sexuality of the body. I always thought, why are we protecting Freud? Or why are we trying to protect Freud's theories from a doctrine of pansexualism? Because if you read the 1905 classic text, one of the two texts that Freud said would have lasting importance to the understanding of the human condition, the 1905 Three Essays on Sexuality, as as you know, Philip, is a, is a really quite interesting polemical uh, set of essays sort of proving that we're all queer, sort of proving that we all have within us all sorts of capacities for sensual pleasure. And that, I think, is why it should be called sexual. Because if we start to call it sensuality, we sort of managed to uh, make it a little bit wishy-washy in the sense that we're avoiding the fact that these are movements of psychic energy that are regulated by pleasure and unpleasure. How things work energetically is around pleasure and unpleasure and repression and our resistance to the release of repression. So I think... You know, you can debate it either way. Maybe it'd been better if he had said the sensuality of the body is what founds our psychic life. He said sexuality for reason. And part of the reason for maintaining the word sexuality is also that we should not avoid the oedipality of psychic life. So there are several reasons for calling it sexual. One, it is an movement of energy that is organized around pleasure and unpleasure. Two, if you avoid Uh, the word sexuality, you are implicitly doing what has been done again and again, which is you are sort of being phobic about the genitals. But what you mean by sexuality when you talk about it in a Freudian way is actually the entire body in pleasure and unpleasure and how the entire body, uh, with all its different uh, zones and all its different modes of meaningfulness, um, is very, very central. To who we are in the world and what we are in the world and, and the final bit that you, you said is uh, you know when you're listening for free association or trying to promote free association by interpreting the resistances to it what are you doing i think one thing that should that i do when my patients get further along there's a couple of distinctive features because every patient i've ever had in psychoanalysis. And I have to admit, the vast majority of patients that I have in psychoanalysis are actually psychotherapists because they come to me for advanced training. Almost every patient who's come to me to psychoanalysis has had previous psychotherapy, psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy. And almost invariably they say, this is very different. This is very powerful. This is much more powerful. Now, what makes it much more powerful I think one feature of listening to free association is that you sort of refuse to settle for making sense. So you are opening yourself to listening to dimensions. In my uh, International Journal of Psychoanalysis article uh, that came out in, I think, 2017, I talk about listening to the otherwise. You're not just listening for other meanings. I come to you as a patient, Philip, with a whole repertoire of meanings, a whole repertoire of uh, representations about myself, about the world, about my emotions, and so forth. And you, as my analyst, are going to help me make sense of them. That's the psychotherapeutic phase. But at some point, if I really radically pursue the free associative process, I come to realize that there are things going on within me that are powerful, yet are never going to be captured by a representation called an interpretation. So in psychoanalysis pursued free associatively, we in some way don't rest. We don't rest with just what makes sense. We try to open ourselves to listening to things that will never make sense, yet are actually quite powerful forces within our life. That is to say, listening to... A message of energies that come from, from so to speak, beyond the repression barrier that are embodied. And the other, another feature that almost always my patients talk about, uh, and that is, I think, very important, um, because, again, I think it differs both from psychotherapy conducted psychoanalytically and also from the body psychotherapies, is that When you start really immersing yourself free associatively as you lie on the couch in the presence of an analyst, bodily changes take place. Now, they may not seem gross changes, but there are actual physical changes that come about through this sort of a psychoanalysis. And I don't think that that happens so much uh, in most psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapies. And the way it happens in the body psychotherapy techniques is actually somewhat different uh in the mode of how you make meaning out of events that occur somatically within us so um
0: so if we 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 say we're looking at these kind of four coordinates of of Freudian <clears throat> theory that that you work out free free association repression. Sort of the body, psychic, sec, the sexual body and its
1: energies, um, Oedipus. A free association is the method. The four the four coordinates that come out of it. The first three come come quite logically out of his experience with uh, free association, repression, sensuality or energy, and the etiology or the peculiar temporality of the mind, and the the fourth, which is Oedipality is actually inferable from the first three and, and this is a very complicated argument which i make at quite a lot of length uh in in the trilogy um but the method comes first the four coordinates come out of it if that makes it,
0: sense yeah and it may be complicated in a way but you make it pretty clear and it's a pretty elegant sort of way of bringing it all together in any case it's, is it is is the Is this a drive, then would we call this a drive theory of psychoanalysis? And if so, where does the death instinct fit in?
1: Ah, good question. Wonderful question. Also highly controversial. Look, Freud said, uh, uh, how you use the word drive uh, and how Freud uses it in German and how it's been mistranslated frequently by in the Strachey edition as the word instinct. These are very, very important questions, and, and I'm not going to be able to answer them fully, except if you have this idea that there is, so to speak, a threefold ontology to the human condition, that we have a material being, that is to say we have nerves and bones and all our anatomical structures and physiological functions, And we have what we've known from Descartes is our mental being, our res cogitans, which is essentially our representational world of thinking, including thinking, emotions, thinking, wishes, and so forth. Freud's saying that there's something else. And he's saying that there's something else, which is psychic energy, which runs between the two of these. In fact, there's one quote, the exact year of it, I can't remember, but I think It's 1915, in which he says, We are compelled to posit the notion of drive. He used the words in German, treep, functioning between the biology and the psychology. So that's important. And that actually is something which, if you look at the history of psychoanalysis, rapidly people tried to get rid of. And they got rid of it in one of two ways. They got rid of it either by saying, Drive is just like a motivation, like you might have a motivation to take up squash or stamp collecting. There are motivations. That's not what drive is. Or what has happened uh, right from the beginning and more recently in the neuropsychoanalytic movement is to say that what Freud calls drive is actually certain sorts of features of our biology. And I think it's clear if you read Freud carefully that both of these are quite incorrect. So we have energy functioning between essentially what one colloquially calls the body and what one colloquially calls the mind. Um, Now, you raised a a question that went beyond that. You said, what about the death instinct? Um, If you think of this energy, then what happens with this energy is that it gets invested in different representations. So right now, you have, unless you've actually fallen asleep, you have a representation of some strange person talking to you about psychoanalysis. Yeah? So at the moment, you've got energy invested in that representation. When we stop our conversation and you go have a cup of coffee, that representation will fade into some sort of pre-conscious state and your coffee or your need for breakfast will actually get invested. So when Freud talked about investment, as you know, when Strachey translated uh, the German word besetzen or besetzung, he translated it in the ugly Greek terms kathexis and decathexis. What we actually, we would be better actually having used the terms that the French translation uses the investment or disinvestment of energy in representations. I know this is a long-winded answer to the question of the life and the death instinct. The life and the death instinct, which Freud introduced uh, in uh, 1920, I'm very much in favor of Jean Laplanche's interpretation of this. I actually think the uh, what has happened with the death instinct, as you know, is that largely in North American lineages of psychoanalysis, it's dismissed as some sort of metaphysical hocus pocus, a speculation. What's happened in the Kleinian and the object relations world, it was a t- it was taken to mean the innate destructiveness of the human individual. Jean Laplanche says that actually life and death, uh, the Lebenstrieb and the Todestrieb, are not actually Instincts—they're not actually drives at all. They are principles of the functioning of energy, and he got this, or Freud got this, more more accurately, in a way from a 1912 paper written by Sabina Spielrein, uh, who has suddenly come to attention through recent movies. But Sabina Spielrein wrote about the, the integral complicity of creativity and destructiveness in 1912. Freud picked that up, and I think that what Freud was, was talking about is that psychic energy has two qualities. It has a lifeful quality of being invested in us, being invested in our, our representational world, and there is a deathful quality. And the deathful quality is when energy withdraws. And you can think of that metaphysically as energy withdrawing from our representational system, our mind. You can think equally that energy could be withdrawn from our physical being. That gets a little bit like the sort of the philosopher Henri Bergson's notion of the Elan Vital. Uh, but I, I think that the point is that we have to rethink life and death as integral to every moment of our living. That in fact, deathfulness and lifefulness are very integral to everything, and this is all to do with principles by which psychic energy moves. It's a complicated matter, but I hope I've explained it at least preliminarily in an adequate yeah,
0: way. Yeah, I think it's uh, there's a kind of a clarity to how you think about psychoanalysis, um, but it's um, uh, people who read your work will see that it's informed by a really profound immersion in in the Western intellectual tradition as well as in some Eastern thoughts. But we're going to have to sort of wind down. And I I wanted, is there any last thing you would like to say about the books, about your writing that that
1: I haven't covered? That's a very, very difficult question. Every author is tempted to say, (laughs) but I don't really want to end. I don't really want to end on that commercial (sighs) Uh note. I think I would like to say, that you know, psychoanalysis for me as a personal odyssey probably saved my life uh, in terms of troubles that I had as a child, as an adolescent. And since I was 20, I've been very devoted to understanding psychoanalysis, to understanding particularly something that I think is getting lost often in the psychic, uh, psychoanalytic world, which is the original method that demystified not only demystified but brought life's energies back into circulation in our psychic being because, let's face it, most of us, all of us, to some degree or other, some tragically to an extensive degree, some of us joyfully to a less extensive degree, all of us are subject to the repetition compulsion which in some ways keeps us stuck somatically and psychically. That's what free association attempts to undo. And that's why I needed to write this trilogy.
0: Well, I think everybody should go out and buy these books. <laughs> so so I'll end with a little commercial note there. I really truly believe that for people who are, are deeply interested in, in being being psychoanalysts and bringing that um, to their patients. So, um, So thank you again. And you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Barnaby Barrett about his book, Beyond Psychotherapy, on becoming a radical psychoanalyst here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis Network. Um, Please check out our website where you can subscribe with your email address and never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.